Father in heaven, Lord, your love is only describable. It's reckless in a way. It's not that you don't love us in a very deliberate sort of way because you do. It's not that you are careless with us, that you don't reach out and touch us, Lord, because you do. But Lord, we just realize that we're not worth it in our eyes. That there's nothing that we could do or become. There's nothing that we could say or give. There's nothing that we could ever accomplish that would in any way compare to the life and the, and the, the blood of your son. And yet you felt that our life, that our salvation, that our soul was worth that awful cost. Father, we just thank you that you've allowed us to be a part of your family that you've given us a place to sit at your table, that we can be called by your name, that your spirit indwells us, and that someday when this life is over, whether you come for us and take us all home or if we pass from this life as so many other generations have through death, that you're waiting for us, that you've prepared a place for us, that we might spend all of eternity with you in your presence and accomplishing your purposes. Father, we thank you this morning for the church. We know, Lord, it's far from perfect because it's made up of us. But we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to try to figure out this Christian life on our own. That we don't have to navigate the struggles that are a part of every person's story by ourselves. That we don't have to beat down the temptations of Satan without brothers and sisters standing on either side of us that are helping us do that. And Father, I just pray this morning as we talk about your church that you would just open our hearts to understand what your plan and purpose for that church is. God, as you open your word today, help us to open our hearts to what you have to say to us. And we pray all those things in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you guys know that we've been talking about going through a series of lessons called Battle Ready. We started off in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, where Paul tells the church in Ephesus that your job is to stand. And he says, after you've done everything to stand, then stand firm then. And we got the sense there that Paul is very, very serious about this standing sort of thing. And it's remarkable because sometimes we are a lot more concerned about doing But Paul wanted us to realize that so much of the battle is won simply by our standing. That's not to say that we're in some way uninvolved or apathetic. We're going to talk about that for a moment this morning. But but the truth is is that the battle over over Satan, the battle over sin and death, so much of that battle has already been fought and won by Jesus Christ. We are called simply to stand in the place where he stood, to walk in the footsteps that he walked to live as he has lived. And as you and I all know well this morning, that is not any kind of a small assignment. We've talked over the last few weeks about some of the things that we have to do in order to be ready to answer that call, in order to be ready to make that stand and to accomplish what it is that God has in fact called us to accomplish. And I recognize, as you do, that, that there's a lot of very difficult things in the, in the texts that we've been going through over these past week or so, or a few weeks. 
Next week, Mr. Bruce is going to take us through a unique approach to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and the armor of God, and talking about the various parts of that armor and how each of those things has a purpose and a plan put there by God so that we might be able to stand the attacks that we receive. But this morning, we're going to talk about one of two things that we said that we actually stand up for or defend. Last week, we talked about how that we stand and defend our families and how in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament uh, leaders would challenge the people to stand up for your family. Moses did this. Many others did this as well. And we, we took a look at one of those instance, instances. This morning, we're going to take a look at, at what we do to stand up or to defend Christ's vision of the church. You look through the Old Testament, there's a mystery that kind of runs its thread from the very first part of the book of Genesis, really through the last words of the book of Malachi. It was a question that was turning over in each and every person's mind who was spiritual. Some of them got big clues and big parts of it, like David uh, understood at least some aspects of it. Daniel wondered about what it was that God was going to bring. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 accurately describes the very life of Jesus and death of Jesus. Then there's other people like, like Zechariah who, who sees things about the coming of the church as well. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but he writes about it and sings about it in the book of Zechariah. He envisions something very, very special. This morning, we're going to talk about that thing that he envisioned. I love biographies. How many of you guys are, are readers? How many readers do we have in here this morning? All right, readers by choice. All right, some of you are like, I read because I have to. How many of you read because you have to? They make you read, all right? How many of you read because you like to read? All right, there's a few of us in here. Nerds, I think they call us. That's the name for it. Um, how many of you like biographies? I feel better. If you go to my library at home, if you go to my library here at church, it's mostly full of church books. But if you go to my library at the house, there's a whole section, one whole side, floor to ceiling, it's biographies. And I have some strange biographies. A friend of mine came up and he was looking. He said, why do you have his book? Why do you have her book? <laughs> and uh, I understand that. Some of the books on that shelf are people that I don't necessarily care for. I don't necessarily believe in what they, what they say. And if I think it's any kind of a mystery, I put a little note in the front cover. If you ever get a book from Jason and it says, I have this book because I was interested in how the person thought, not in what they thought, or something like that, you know it's for me. Um, but, uh, but I love biographies because when you look at somebody's life, you begin to understand a lot more about why they do what they do. I remember one of the first biographies I ever read was a book that someone gave me when I was like a freshman in high school. And it was not a freshman in high school kind of reading book, but my grandpa gave it to me and I respected my grandpa. And he gave me this book. It was Sam Walton's book. How many of you guys remember that when you're, this is old people right here. All right. Um, Sam Walton there, he's in the front of his red pickup truck. He's leaning out the door right here. If you guys don't know who Sam Walton is, for those of you who are younger here today, he's the guy who started Walmart. All right. And he started Walmart as like this little, little store. In, in Arkansas, and now obviously it's this dominant force in the world. It's kind of like Amazon. Everybody in the world knows what those two things are. And, uh, and, and he, it just kind of chronicled how he came up, how he started that business, and the ethic that he sought to see to be a part of Walmart. Now, if you've ever worked for Walmart, 
you know that the Walmart of 20 or 30 years ago was a very different store than the Walmart today. And part of that is because Sam Walton put into his store his values. And when you read that book, you, you, you can see that. That's why they do what they do, because this is their founder's values. These are the things that Sam Walton said, I think this is important. I think that people deserve to be treated this way. I believe that I can make a substantial profit and still help my employees share part of that profit. Now, over the years, other people have taken over the business. The children have. It's become a big multinational corporation. And now it's much more, it's run pretty much like a big corporation. But at one point in time, if you're old enough, you remember a Walmart that looked a little bit different than it does today. You know, the Bible is really, in some ways, very, very similar. The Bible is a story of God's working with us. But when we get to the New Testament, the Bible begins to kind of shift gears because the first four chapters of the New Testament are biography of the life of someone who we should really know very well, and that is Jesus Christ. And they write this story from four different people's perspective because God wants us to understand from whatever avenue that we come at the Bible from, God wants us to understand who Jesus was because he's called us to be like him. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about what Christ's vision for the church is. If you've been in, in, in church here at Forest Park for a long time, you, you'll probably know a lot of these things because these are parts of our DNA. But if you're a fairly new person to the church, I, I want you to understand that, that so much of what we do here and strive to do here comes from this desire. We, as a congregation, as a group of people together, sincerely desire to build a church as best we can in the modern world today that looks like one that Jesus might have built if he were here now, now, obviously, if Jesus built a church, it would be spectacular. It would be amazing, right? Because he is spectacular and amazing. But what were the things that Jesus was passionate about? What were the pieces of a church that Jesus would want to be a part of every single church? In Matthew, the 16th chapter, there's this powerful story when, when Jesus is there with with his disciples, and, and obviously uh, Peter gives this great confession, right? And, 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 then, and then Jesus kind of builds on that, and he says this. He said, I also say to you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And sometimes people mistake that. They think that they're talk, he's talking about Peter, because he says you're Peter. But if you look at the Greek there, he says you're little rock, but upon this boulder, upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and the, the rock that he was talking about building on, in fact, was the... The great confession that Peter had made a moment before. Jesus said, who do you believe that I am? And Peter said, well, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And Peter, Jesus said, you've answered correctly, Peter. And then he says this, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's a lot we could talk about there this morning. I want to focus on one piece of this. This is a text that no doubt you've all heard before, right? But, but I want to focus on one piece of this, and that is that Jesus said two things that are really important. He said, I will build my church. Sometimes in America today, we have this little phrase, and I know we don't mean anything by it. You've said it. I've said it. But we'll say my church, right? Right? We'll say, uh, why don't you come with me to my church? Or, or at my church, we do this, that, or the other. Or what do they do at your church? Or whatever the case might be. Now, we all know that people are just saying the place where I attend. And I get that. But 
But I want to make a distinction with this here this morning. I think this is really, really important to make. The church is built by and owned by Jesus Christ. When we talk about the church, it's his. Now, this, is, this is a catastrophic, not catastrophic, this is a huge earth-shaking kind of concept that a lot of people, if you don't know this, a lot of people really don't look at it this way. Because in a lot of places, we get together and we figure out what we think should be the teachings of the church. We think we get together and we have conferences or assemblies or they're called by a million different names, but we get together and we talk about this. Now, what do we think we should do here? What do we think we should do there? Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to build my church. That's true that there will always be discussions of theology. There will always be debates about text and scripture. I think that the church was designed that way on purpose. If God had wanted to, God could have foreseen every, seen every argument that would have ever come up, and he could have listed answers to those arguments in an appendix in the back of the Bible. But God didn't choose to do that. In fact, the Bible has this concept that I think is really important for us to catch, and it's a rich concept. It says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, God wants us to wrestle with some things sometimes. Jesus did that all the time in his teaching. People would come up and ask, ask a question, Jesus would tell them a story that answered their question, but only after they worked through it and they struggled with it and they were challenged by it. It's important for us to realize that this is Jesus' church. I'm going to build my church. And so one of our questions needs to be, well, am I a part of Jesus Church, are my convictions similar to his convictions? This is a very different way of approaching a walk with Christ. A lot of people, in fact, don't approach it that way. I have a lot of good friends that, and kind of for me as well in some ways, just kind of grew up, I grew up one way, or I grew up this, or I grew up that. It's just kind of like it was our heritage that was handed down to us. But in reality, it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, is this what I know to be true, or is this true? Truth is, guys, that life is a growing process. I have grown a lot since I came up as a youngster in, the, in, in southern Iowa, and you guys have all grown a lot too. Some of you guys, I've seen you guys grow up, and I, I know that you're different people than you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And that's exactly how the church is supposed to work. We are constantly growing to become more and more like the one that we are worshiping. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, is a great passage of scripture that talks about this in verses 15 and 16 or so. It says this, it says, instead, we speak the truth in love. And a lot of times we've heard that before, very important uh, a characteristic of a Christian, growing in every way more and more like Christ. So, if you want to know the goal of life, guys, this is a beautiful passage, kind of just to sum up the goal of life. He said, we're going to speak the truth in love, so we're going to be truth tellers, but we're not going to be truth beaters, right? You can, you can share truth with people in a way that crushes them. You can share truth in a way with people in a way that convicts them and moves them forward. And so we're going to speak the truth in love, but we're also personally growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is ahead of the body, of his body, the church. Now check this out, just, just to kind of build on this quickly this morning. 
As Paul looks at the church, he says that it's, it's Jesus' body. You know those texts, you know those passages, but I want you to know this morning, even if you're sitting in these pews and you think to yourself, Jason, I'm not near as important as somebody else in this building. You're wrong. Every single one of us are a part of, if you're a part of the church, you are a part of the body of Christ. We use that phrase, some of us have used that phrase so much, we don't even think about what it means anymore. We're just like, yeah, the body of Christ, yeah, the body. But we are, in fact, a part of his body. And Paul said he is the head. He is the control center, right? All right, we, we're all familiar with how the head works. I don't need to break that down for us this morning. But Christ is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Who does that? Do we do that? No. He says Jesus does. Jesus orchestrates this. He fits the whole body together perfectly as each part does its own special work and helps others parts, other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. This is a beautiful mission statement that the Apostle Paul writes here as to the shape of the church. He said, if you can get this, you understand so much more about what it is that Jesus really desired to come and bring to this world. He said, we we, we gotta be people that are out in this world and we're sharing the truth. We do it in a way that loves, the way that builds people up and draws people in. But not only that, we are all parts of a body a body whose head is Jesus, controlled by our, sh- our thoughts and, our, and our, our cognitive processes, shaped by his thoughts and what he's given us in, in the text of scripture. And as we go out and we do our thing, as we do our own, as he calls it, special work, we not only grow personally, but we help other people grow. And when that happens, the whole body begins to be healthy and it works together, growing and is full of love. That's exactly what Jesus envisioned when he envisioned the church. Last week, I was listening to a podcast of some great business leader. He was talking about about two questions that every organization, and talking about businesses, but he said every organization needs to ask of their organization. So my ears kind of perked up. You know, I'm like, two, I can handle this, right? Two questions. And uh, unlike today's sermon, it has like eight main divisions, and you guys are worried. Hold on. We're going to get there. We're going to start rolling. Um, but he said there's, there's two questions, and, and, and one of those questions is, is, what is the purpose of my organization or my business? And the second question is, what do other people say the purpose of my business is? He said, if you can answer those two questions and the answer is the same, you will probably be successful in business. And I got thinking about that because I was working on this sermon. I said, you know, that's so true. What would we say the purpose of the church is? And then the other question would be, when you go out and you just ask people, what is the purpose of the church? What would they say the purpose of the church is? And so in the the next few moments this morning, we're going to try to answer that question. What is the purpose of the church? If Jesus could outline what he wants to see in a church, what would he want to see? What are the things that Jesus would love to see as a part of his body? So if you're filling along or filling out the answer sheet, number two is simply this. He would want to see passionate service. He would want to see people that were excited and on fire. Ambivalence about the church is really not an option for Christ followers, all right? You can't love the bride and hate the, the, or you can't love the groom and hate the bride. There we go. I got my wires crossed. You can't love the head and hate the body. 
Today we somehow think that we can, we can love Jesus but not like the church. What we mean by that is I don't like what some people say the church is. But when we see the church for what Jesus saw it was, you can't help but love it. Jesus wants us to not just be people who go through the motions of what we do spiritually because we feel some kind of duty or commitment. He wants us to be people who are passionate and driven. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Paul writes to the church about marriage, and he uses an interesting metaphor here. He says, husbands, this mean, means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So as he's talking about marriage, he's going to the husbands, and he's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to use Christ's love for the church as a teaching method. Now, guys in the crowd this morning, this is a very high bar. This is something we should pay attention to as husbands. Husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave his life up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Paul said, Jesus loved the church so much, husbands, that he sent his son to die for her. Look, look, church, let's just talk about this for a moment this morning if we can. I know that there's a lot that goes on in every single person's life here this morning that is competing for our attention. I know that we've got people that are demanding of us and asking of us things at work. Some of us are involved in school as well, and so we've got teachers, and, or maybe you are the teacher, and you have students, and you're trying, to, you're trying to meet the needs of those people. When you go home at night, you have family members and extended family members which also have needs. There's financial concerns. There's health concerns. There's a lot of things that crowd the space of our daily lives. But guys, we can't sacrifice our passion for Christ simply because we're busy. One of the things that worries me the most in the American church today is that we seem to be lacking in most churches one of two things. In some churches, we, we seem to have a lot of spirit. We seem to be very, very enthused. But then when we begin to look at the daily ins and outs of people's lives that are a part of that, of that church, you, you start to see that, that really there's no life change that's happening there. They're really excited on Sundays or on Saturdays whenever they, they go and do worship, but then they leave and it seems like they're the same people that they were when they came to the Lord years before. And we already talked about how we're supposed to be growing and becoming more and more like Jesus, and sometimes that doesn't happen. That seems to be one section of people. And then there's another section of people that, that I see within the body of believers in the, in around the world today. And while they're kind of like the church in Ephesus that this text is written to. Years later, Jesus will write through the apostle John and he will talk to the church in Ephesus and he will say to the church in Ephesus, you guys are amazing in a lot of ways. You guys are, are, are good with the truth of scripture. You understand what false teaching is. You call out people who are saying, this is what it means to be a Christian when it isn't, and I'm proud of you. But I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost your passion. You've lost your fire. You've lost your drive, church in Ephesus. And, and he says, consider the heights from which you've fallen and repent. Do something about it. Guys, we should be the most excited people on the face of the earth. And when I say we, I'm talking about those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
because we've been bought back from the stupid things that we chose to do, and we've been given a chance to live for the one who made it all. We've been given an opportunity to be the bride of Christ. And that means a couple things. Paul talks about it here in this, in this text. Jesus gave his life up for us. And he uses two words that we might be holy and clean. Church, let me just talk a moment about what I started off with. Guys, we, we can't be honest and say that we're on fire for God. We can't say, I really love you, Jesus. I, am, I, I, I would do anything for you, Jesus. We cannot be the kind of children that God calls us to be if we're allowing sin just to run rampant in our life. We know that, but we need to be reminded of that on occasion. A lot of places in text of Scripture, Jesus says something that looks a lot like this, but I'm going to look at the one in John, the 14th chapter. Jesus is in the, in the final meal with the disciples here, and he says simply this. This is the one I remember the most, so maybe it's easiest for me to remember. It should be easy for you as well. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, there's nothing wrong, church, in singing our praises to God. God loves singing. I think God created music, and there is a special thing that happens when people gather together and worship like we did this morning. There's nothing wrong going out and sharing the message of the gospel because that's what we're called to do, right? The Great Commission is to go into all the world and, 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 and create disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you and I'm with you. We know that text. But Jesus says here, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do what I say. Guys, if we're going to call ourselves people that are followers of Christ, then we've got to follow Christ. It doesn't do any good for us to tell people that we do. They can see that. Because it will be evident in how we live every day of our life. First John, the fifth chapter, verse two and three, John builds on this later in his ministry. He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is, this is love for God to keep his commandments. You want to know how God receives love? You ever read that book a few years ago? It's the, the five love languages. It's a pretty good book if you're in a relationship. All right, kind of lays different kinds of relationships out, different love languages people have. You want to know what God's love language is? It's obedience. God loves it when he says go and we go. When God called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to leave home and I want you to go to a far country, the entire story of the Old Testament gets rearranged in that moment, right? Because Abraham says, okay, I'll go. He didn't do it perfectly, but he set out to try. And God used him to be the father of the faithful. Even in Hebrews, generations later, we, we talk about him. We talk about him still to this day. Verse 21 of John 14, Jesus finishes with this. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. I think you guys know what I'm trying to say this morning, but the church, Jesus looks at us. He wants to see us passionate about service. He wants to see our hearts in it, but he wants to see our lives in it as well. Number three, 
when Jesus looks at the church, he wants to see unity. He wants to see people who are on the same page together. Jesus had a very clear vision for the church. And I think as we look at all the passages about unity, I'm going to skip to what I feel like is one of the most powerful found in John, the 17th chapter. This is in the, in the final moments of Jesus' life before the cross. He's praying to God. And, and I'm just going to read that prayer this morning as we quickly move through this. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us today. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Remember, I I told a moment ago, I said that one of the best questions that we can ask is, what do we want our business or our organization to be about and what do other people think it's about jesus said i want your unity to be such a powerful statement that when people look at the church they say that must be jesus followers because of the way they love one another because of the way they care for each other because of how they are one with jesus and one with each other A lot of people try to explain away this text, but really it's very, very clear what Jesus is saying here is obvious. Jesus' vision for the church involves a revolutionary kind of relationship where the people function, work together for one common purpose and one common leader. Number four is a vision of productivity. Jesus doesn't just want us to gather together and have this thing that we do. He's not just interested in us simply and only following a list of rules, but he also wants us to go and accomplish something. And this is kind of a narrative that we follow from through the Bible from the very beginning. When God puts Adam into the world and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Do something with the life that I've given you. And just before Jesus left this earth, he gathers the disciples together there on a mountain outside of Jerusalem. And he says, I'm about to take off, right? They didn't know that at that moment. But he says, go into all the world, the Great Commission, and make disciples of all nations. We are called to be people who are productive, who are doing something. John, the 20th chapter and verse 21, simple text, but powerful text. It says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus came to this earth, and and from a very young age, he knew what his purpose was. In fact, his folks lose him at age 12 they head on home from the, from, the, from the Passover feast. They get a couple days down the road, it sounds like. Where's Jesus? I don't know. That is a pretty scary thing. Um, I've lost a kid before, and I always found a lot of uh, hope and, uh, and console, or, or uh, I don't know what the word is. This morning, my brain's not working. But uh, I was consoled by the fact that Jesus' folks lost him too, right? So they head back to Jerusalem. Where are you going to find this kid in the city of millions, right? And they go to the temple. And where's their son? He's sitting in the midst of teachers, teaching. And Mary, of course, being mom, said, why did you do this to us? What are you thinking, Jesus? And he said, well, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? From a very young age, Jesus was about producing, about accomplishing for the kingdom. When Jesus sees a church, he sees a vision of family. In fact, the Bible, every time it talks about the church, often it uses metaphors 
of family. We looked at one of those just a moment ago. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? Jesus, uh, God, was very, very purposeful to use those types of images. Paul in Ephesians 2 says this. He said, you are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and of the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple to the Lord. Paul is building on kind of a metaphor that Jesus used when he was, when he was alive, when he said, I'm going to tear down this temple and rebuild it again in three days. Paul kind of took that metaphor and said, we're building something here. It's, it's a family. It's a temple. It's a group of people who are something more than just an organization. There's something more than just a name above a door. They're a family. When we look at the New Testament church, we see a very interesting thing develop through the first parts of the book of Acts. First of all, there's this powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as you might remember. Thousands come to the Lord. There's a lot of healing, a lot of exciting things that happen. But then there's this little thing that happens. It's rather interesting. It says, and they all lived as one, selling their possessions and providing for others as they had need. The New Testament church, when they, when they began to experience this thing that was called church, they almost automatically recognized that it was family. And so they began to, to kind of organize themselves as family. And you guys know, because we live in South Louisiana, one of the things I love about South Louisiana is that we still have a very strong family tie. And if somebody in your family is in need, you may not even care for them as much, but if they're in need, you're going to provide for those people, right? And we provide for one another as a community of people down here. That's just a little part of this beautiful thing called the church that's a part of our heritage. We understand that, but that's a part of the vision of what God wants his church to look like. I want you to be a family. I want you to care for one another. In fact, as scripture defines our relationship with one another, it uses brothers and sisters to be that definition. Look at your brothers, look at your sisters, and those phrases are used throughout scripture in the New Testament. When Jesus looks at his body, his family, the church, what he really wants to see, maybe more than anything else, is a reflection of himself. And that's a very humbling thought if you think about it very long. Ephesians 3 says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom or the expansive wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Don't you guys wish that the world around us today would catch on that God is on his throne? Amen? Don't we want that? Don't we wish that, that people in places of power and prominence would have to say, God is alive? I, that's what I want to see. And, and, and what he said here is that his intent was that would be made known through the church. God, God intended for us, his body, to be the ones that lived in such a way that the world around us would be left without any option but to say there is a God there is something to this. There's a great example of this early on in the book of Acts when, when Peter and John are, are brought in before the Sanhedrin. They're brought in because they healed a man on the way into the temple. This guy who had never walked is now dancing in the temple, creating quite a ruckus. They're trying to squash this Jesus revolution, and it is blown up in their face. So they bring him in, and they're threatening them. And then they send them out because they, now they've got to discuss, what are we going to do with these guys? And one of the little phrases that I love in that text is it says, they recognized 
they had been with Jesus. They were just normal, ordinary people. They were uneducated Galileans, but they recognized they had been with Jesus. You know why they recognized that? Because there was something different about the character of those guys. There was something different about the fabric of their convictions. When they stood in front of a group of men who they very well knew just months before had sent their leader to a cross and he had died an agonizing and terrible death. They stood there with boldness. They stood there with confidence. They stood there with determination. They stood there with conviction. And these guys said, you know, we don't have to like it. But these guys are kind of a chip off the old block. These guys have been with Jesus. If you know that story, you know that because of that, they dealt with him very, diff- very differently. <laughs> they He threatened them, but at that point in time, they didn't try to take their lives. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know today that you have a big assignment. I have a big assignment. Our job this week is we leave this place in a few moments and we go back out into the world. We sit at family dinner. We go and visit friends this afternoon. Our job is to reflect Jesus Christ. It's not to be right. It's not to be comfortable. It's not to win an argument. Our job is to reflect Jesus Christ. Christ. And he has not left us alone to do that by ourselves. No, he's equipped us. We have equipment. We have the tools that we need to accomplish that. And they're sitting right around you today. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work And to build up the church, the body of Christ. This church is full of people who are doing that this morning. While I'm up here doing my little part, there's a whole group of other people that are next door in the buildings with the, with the young people. There's people sitting in nursery that are, that, are, that are working with the tiniest of us. There's Tot Chapel earlier this morning where Miss Catherine sits down with little babies right, and begins to lay the foundational stones of what it means to be a Christ follower. That's the beauty of the church. There's so many of us that have the opportunity to contribute to that. We give with our talents in music. We give with our talents in personality. Some of us are just great one-on-one people. Some of us are those leaders. Obviously, we don't have apostles today but there, or prophets for that matter, but there's, there's, there's prof, evangelists and there's elders, there's pastors or elders, there's teachers here to equip, to give us the tools that we need to carry this message. So what do we need in order to be completely effective? What do we need to realize this goal that Jesus has for the church? And that's the last thing as we close with this today. The word is simply Commitment. We are a generation afraid of commitment. More and more civic organizations are quietly thinning in their ranks. As a generation of Americans, at least in the Western church, as the generation of older Americans begin to pass on and their health fails, fewer and fewer are stepping forward and saying, I'm willing to commit to be responsible. I'm willing to commit to carry this burden And while I think that's unfortunate that the Lions and the Rotary Clubs and all those other civic organizations are thinning in ranks uh, because I think they do a good thing in our community, it's tragic when we see that happening within the church. 
I love the fact that I, I can get up on a Sunday morning, guys, and I can preach to a church and we have a lot of, whenever we say, kids are released to go to Junior Chapel, there's this big ruckus in the church. I always love to hear that. You know why? Because we have a lot of young people that are heading out who have come to church with their folks today. I love that fact. But I want you to know that that's not always the case in a lot of places today. If somebody were to ask you this simple question as we close this morning, on a scale of one to 10, What is your commitment to Christ? How would you answer? Now realize, when you ask a question like that, Jesus is listening, all right? So you can't fake this, all right? The man who knows is listening. If you had to honestly answer that question, suppose they were to do a panel of questions, which is even worse, and they were to say, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is your commitment to your family? On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your commitment to your job on a scale of 1 to 10 what is the commitment to the things that you're passionate about in life and what is your commitment to Christ and you knew you couldn't lie you knew you had to answer that correctly what would that number be because you know there's seasons in my life where that number wouldn't have been near where it should be And even today, when I were to put a number right there, I would look at that number and I would say, there's something very wrong with that number. Because where it should be is 10, right? Where it should be is 100%. Because Jesus Christ, if he were asked that question, would have said, I'm completely 100% committed to God. God, let this cup pass from me, he prays, but not my will, yours be done. He didn't want to go to the cross for us, guys. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to die in the flesh. But that was the plan and he carried through with it he was committed to the Father. You guys know me. You know I can preach until noon and I'm not going to do that today. So we're going to wrap up. Here's my challenge for you today as we leave. Whatever that number is. Maybe take a, a post-it note or take your pen right now. Flip over to the back page of your Bible. Write that number. You don't have to write anything with it. Just write that number. No one's going to know what it is. I want you to pray about that. God, help me to make that number go up. Review that in six months. Come back to that in a year. Because we're growing, church. If we're not growing, we're dying. We're growing. We're growing to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That number should keep going. My hope and prayer is that the day that Christ calls our name, that we could honestly say, Lord, I'm right at the top of that list. Maybe some of you are there today awesome. Maybe some of us are looking at that and we're saying, shucks, I'm a two or three. You need to pick it up. Because he gave us everything. Let's stand together.